Section 21 of Life of John Churchill, Duke of Marlborough by Louise Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 10 Political Parties in England. Part 2. Edward Russell, Earl of Orford, to a great extent, owed the confidence which the Whig party placed in him to the fact that he was the brother of the virtuous William Russell who had been so shamefully executed for his supposed complicity in the rye house plot he had begun life in the duke of york's household and had there formed an early friendship with marlborough he was skilful both as a naval commander and as a manager of naval affairs but he was of a grasping and ambitious character and though it was not known till after his death had lost all claim to the confidence of the whigs by his secret communications with james at st germain he had won popularity by his victory off la Hogue, and the whigs believed that naval affairs could only prosper under his direction but as a statesman he never gained distinction these four men were the leaders of the whig party during the reign of william the third sunderland the youngest member of the junto had only risen to importance in anne's reign he was in everything the follower of Somers, but he was wanting in tact and moderation, and the violence of his political opinions made Marlborough decidedly unwilling to do anything for his promotion in spite of the close tie that bound them together. In the Duchess, however, Sunderland had a firm friend. She never wearied of pushing his claims, and when Marlborough and Godolphin were obliged to lean more on the support of the Whigs, one of the most pressing demands of the junto was that some post should be obtained for sunderland for as marlborough's son-in-law he at least was entitled to advancement but the queen besides her decided dislike to the whigs had a special dislike to sunderland and all that could be obtained for him at first was an appointment as ambassador extraordinary to vienna in seventeen o five when sunderland returned from vienna in seventeen o six no effort was spared to get him made secretary of state in place of sir charles hedges a tory the queen showed the greatest objection to the change she had a horror of falling into the hands of the whigs she writes to godolphin why for god's sake must i who have no interest no end no thought but for the good of my country be made so miserable as to be brought into the power of one set of men and why may not i be trusted since i mean nothing but what is equally for the good of all my subjects there is another apprehension i have of lord sunderland being secretary which i think is a natural one which proceeds from what i have heard of his temper i am afraid he and i should not agree long together finding by experience my humour and those that are of a warmer will often have misunderstandings i conclude begging you to consider how to bring me out of my difficulties and never leave my service for jesus christ's sake for this is a blow i cannot bear but godolphin knew that the whigs would not support the government unless sunderland were made secretary they had waited long enough without any reward for their services without their support the war could not go on and godolphin did not cease to urge the queen to give way the duchess interfered with her usual violence and pressed sunderland's claims on the queen in angry letters in which she forgot all decency until she thoroughly disgusted her in one letter she says 
upon recalling everything to my memory that may fill my heart with all that passion and tenderness i once had for mrs morley i do solemnly protest i think i can no ways return what i owe her so well as by being honest and plain as one mark of it i desire you would reflect whether you have never heard that the greatest misfortunes that ever has happened to any of your family has not been occasioned by having ill advice and an obstinacy in their tempers the queen was strengthened in her resistance by harley who managed by his insinuating behaviour to retain the confidence of marlborough and godolphin whilst secretly intriguing against them in the government the whigs saw that he was the real cause of the opposition to their wishes and threatened to demand his dismissal from office at last after about three months constant discussion and correspondence on the subject the queen was persuaded to give way godolphin's frequent threats of resignation helped to make her comply and she was afraid lest the whigs should turn their attacks on harley to whom she clung as a moderate tory and on whose opinions she had entire confidence when marlborough returned from holland after the successful campaign which had followed romilly's and joined godolphin in his urgent entreaties that she would give way anne could no longer resist and on the third of december seventeen o six sunderland's appointment to the secretaryship was announced and was followed by the introduction of several other less important whigs into the government while several whigs were promoted to the peerage harley was the only tory of importance who retained his post and the violent tories were all excluded from the privy council marlborough and godolphin had attained at last to a composite government such as they had long desired but whilst party intrigues seemed to be absorbing all the energies of the english government a question of far greater importance was at length being brought to a successful issue one of the last acts of william the third had been to send a message to the commons pressing upon them the immediate necessity of taking steps to bring about a union between scotland and england commissioners for this purpose had been named early in anne's reign but neither england nor scotland showed much zeal in the matter and it was allowed to drop but as time went on the urgent necessity for a union became daily clearer scottish affairs were much disturbed and what was more the scottish parliament showed intentions of naming a different successor to anne from the one appointed by the english act of settlement godolphin was too timid and uncertain to adopt any vigorous measures and only seemed perplexed by the difficulty of the question at last both whigs and tories combined to press upon him the necessity of appointing a new commission and in april seventeen o six thirty-one commissioners from each side began their meetings chief amongst these commissioners in knowledge and intellect was lord somers and to him more than to any one man the work of the union is due the other commissioners submitted to his powerful mind and little by little the difficult points were settled when the commissioners had done their work the union had to be approved by the houses of parliament in both countries in scotland it met with a violent opposition but after some alterations was at last carried through the influence of the government and the whigs who were determined to see an end of the question it was also carried in the english parliament and finally on the sixth of march seventeen o seven the act of union became law 
its chief provisions were that there should be one kingdom called great britain one parliament to which scotland was to send forty-five members about one-twelfth of the whole number and one successor the electress of hanover as decided in the english act of settlement to the house of lords scotland was to send sixteen peers elected out of her whole peerage the establishment of a government which satisfied the whigs and the final settlement of the union seemed to promise to godolphin and marlborough some rest and freedom from party intrigue but they were soon to discover how impossible it is to govern in england according to their favourite scheme of a coalition it was their fearfulness of joining themselves entirely to one party lest they should lose influence or office by so doing which in the end proved so fatal to them marlborough may have been sincere in his expressions of dislike to both political parties we cannot wonder that the small intrigues in england disgusted and wearied him when his mind was fully enough occupied with the affairs of the grand alliance and the conduct of the war but godolphin's entire want of any political principles his hesitating dealings first with one party and then with another cannot be excused in a man who was at the head of the government to have joined cordially with the whigs or to have remained true to the tories and to the wishes of the queen would have been not only a more dignified but in the end a more successful course of conduct harley's position in the government gave him abundant opportunity to intrigue in favour of the tories as secretary of state for the northern department he had constant access to the queen and whilst he still enjoyed the complete confidence of the duke of marlborough was doing his utmost to inflame the queen's irritation against the duchess and against the whigs the tories had another still more powerful friend and the duchess a still more dangerous foe at court a foe moreover whom she had unwittingly been the means of introducing herself a desire to lessen her own duties at court and at the same time to help a poor relation had led the duchess to ask the queen to make a cousin of hers abigail hill who was in needy circumstances one of her bedchamber women she thought that mrs hill owing everything to her and being beside a person of very ordinary abilities could not possibly exert an influence at court hostile to hers but the queen was one of those women who liked to lean on some one and who had by nature a great amount of romantic tenderness for which she was compelled to find an object she was wearied by the overbearing arrogance of the duchess whom she had once so fondly loved and she found a great relief in the gentle obsequious conduct of mrs hill who was entirely without pretensions besides this abigail shared the queen's views in church matters and in politics clever enough to see in what ways the duchess managed to make herself disagreeable to the queen she adopted quite opposite tactics she tried to anticipate anne's wishes was humble and deferential in her manners and agreed with all the queen's opinions related to the duchess through her mother mrs hill was also related to harley through her father and to him now she was of the greatest possible use through her he could impress all his views and wishes upon the queen and by her means he could irritate the queen more against the duchess and through the duchess against the whigs the duchess who in spite of all signs to the contrary 
was entirely confident in her power over the queen was slow to believe that any new person and above all a creature so mean as her own dependent could usurp any of the queen's favour but at last it became impossible to doubt what was going on the duke who was informed of it whilst in holland in june seventeen o seven thought it would be easy to put a stop to it if you are sure he wrote to the duchess that mrs hill does speak of business to the queen i should think you might speak to her with some caution which might do good for she certainly is grateful and will mind what you say the duchess spoke both to mrs hill and the queen but without any caution blaming the queen with her usual violent language both in conversation and in letters for her confidence in mrs hill the queen's letter humble as her letters always were shows clearly the real state of things i give my dear mrs freeman many thanks for her letter but i have so often been unfortunate in what i have said to you that i think the less i say to your last letter the better therefore i shall only in the first place beg your pardon once more for what i said the other day which i find you take ill and say something in answer to your explanation of the suspicions you seem to have concerning your cousin hill who is very far from being an occasion of feeding mrs morley in her passion as you are pleased to call it she never meddles with anything i believe others that have been in her station in former times have been tattling and very impertinent but she is not at all of that temper i hope since in some part of your letter you seem to give credit to a thing because i said it was so you will be as just in what i have said now about hill for i would not have any one hardly thought of by my dear mrs freeman for your poor unfortunate but ever faithful morley's notions or actions soon after the duchess's wrath was still more excited by discovering that mrs hill had been secretly married to mr masham a gentleman whose place in the royal household was also owing to her favour and that the queen had been present at the wedding on hearing this she at once rushed to the queen and heaped upon her the most violent reproaches for having connived at this act of concealment the duchess had no idea of trying to win back her former favour by soft words and her angry reproaches only made matters daily worse meanwhile the whigs were growing more and more indignant at the influence which harley had with the queen some ecclesiastical appointments made by the queen entirely in the high church interest without consulting godolphin or marlborough also caused much irritation the state of things tended to make the whigs distrustful of the good intentions of the two ministers who themselves began to understand the intrigues of harley but did not venture to go against him for fear of offending the queen marlborough seems to have been at times anxious to act more vigorously he writes to godolphin i can't but think there should be no time lost in speaking plainly to her majesty in letting her know what you and i think is her interest if she be of another opinion i think you and i should honestly let her know that we shall not be able to carry on her business with success so that she might have time to take her measures with such as will be able to serve her but though this letter was shown to the queen it produced no effect for she evidently did not believe in their threats of resignation and she answered by a letter in her usual tone of humble appeal to marlborough justifying her conduct and begging him always to speak freely to her marlborough grew more and more disgusted with the whole matter i am so weary of all this sort of management he wrote to the duchess 
that i think it is the greatest folly in the world to think any struggling can do good when both sides have a mind to be angry when i say this i know i must go on in the command i have here as long as the war lasts but i would have nothing to do anywhere else the whigs indignation with the government at last led them to join with the extreme tories in a plan for attacking it in the session of parliament which began in october seventeen o seven a violent speech was made by wharton in the house of lords on the decay of trade and against the conduct of naval affairs which was specially intended to irritate marlborough by incriminating his brother admiral churchill rochester and the extreme tories proceeded to attack the conduct of the war here marlborough defended himself with a dignity and an ability which carried conviction to all who heard him so that lord somers moved a resolution which was unanimously carried that no peace could be reasonable or safe either for her majesty or her allies if spain and the west indies were suffered to continue in the power of the house of bourbon to separate the extreme tories and the whigs the government once more drew near to the whigs and the queen even was induced to make some concessions to gratify them from fear lest their attacks should be turned on harley marlborough was at last convinced that the coalition government could not stand he hesitated a while afraid of offending the queen by urging the dismissal of harley but it became so clear to him that harley was intriguing with a view of overthrowing the existing government and bringing back the tories that it was imperative to take some decisive step suspicions were also aroused that harley had been involved in treacherous negotiations with france both godolphin and marlborough who were now assured of the firm support of the whigs informed the queen that they would no longer serve with harley she persisted in refusing to dismiss him and when on the ninth february a cabinet council was summoned neither marlborough nor godolphin appeared at it harley and the queen affected to notice nothing and harley opened the business amidst uneasy murmurs from the other ministers till the duke of somerset took advantage of a moment's silence to say i do not see how we can deliberate when the commander-in-chief and the lord treasurer are absent the queen had to break up the meeting and on the eleventh february harley resigned his office he was doubtless influenced in so doing by the thought that he was hardly strong enough then to form a tory government himself and that after a time he would be able having entirely broken with godolphin and marlborough to return to office with full power and the entire confidence of the tories with him retired st john and some other tories and their places were filled by whigs though as yet no other member of the junto but sunderland was given a share in the government the whigs demanded that somers should be made president of the council things went on as before the queen refused obstinately to give way and the whigs blamed marlborough and godolphin for her refusal the state of things was complicated still further by the quarrels between the duchess and the queen which daily increased in violence and made the position of marlborough and godolphin very difficult the duchess continually charged the queen with listening to no one but mrs masham and with still having communications with harley and all this naturally only increased the queen's dislike to the whigs and led her to cling more than ever to mrs masham marlborough and godolphin as usual threatened to resign if somers were not admitted into the government 
but these threats were no more sincere than they had been before and produced no effect upon the queen the whigs grew more and more angry and threatened the government with serious opposition in the parliamentary elections in seventeen o eight they exerted themselves to the utmost to obtain the return of whig members sunderland even made use of the influence he possessed as member of the government to obtain the return in scotland of members hostile to the government and by this disloyal conduct deeply offended the queen but the whigs at last discovered a means of influencing the queen they threatened to invite to england the heir apparent the elector of hanover a proposal to which she had the strongest objection and once more began their attacks upon the admiralty which were particularly painful to the queen as her husband prince george was at its head the queen felt all the more bitterly the attacks against prince george because he was then dangerously ill fearful lest his last moments should be disturbed she declared herself ready to give way to the wishes of the whigs in order that they might leave off their attacks on the admiralty the prince died on the twenty ninth of october seventeen o nine and shortly afterwards lord somers was appointed president of the council lord wharton viceroy of ireland and lord orford head of the admiralty at last the whigs were in full possession of power though the feelings of the queen were more hostile to them than ever End of section twenty one